You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. We turn to the Gospel of John. We find ourselves in the Gospel of John, working, for, working through this beautiful book that is extremely rich. I was telling uh, somebody yesterday that, you know, you get to, to chapter four of John's gospel and you're like, oh, the, the woman at the well. This will be, be great. We'll get through this in a, a couple messages. And as you start reading it, as you start reflecting on, on the word and just the, the depth that is in here, uh, it just doesn't seem right to, to skip over so many important things. And the, the book is just so rich. So we're taking this a little bit slower but I, I think that we're benefiting from it. I, I know I, I know I have been. Let's stand together as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. I'm going to start in verse 27. Just then... His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One souls and another reaps. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we, we thank you so much for your great provision that you, you give us. We, you provide for us at every turn. Just thinking about in this short video the, the blessing of, of your word. The, the fact that we bring a, a copy, that we have copies in our, our pews, that we have such great access to it. 
Lord, I pray that, that we would be people who, who love your word, who long to, to read it, study it, who long to find it sufficient in our lives. Lord, we, we thank you for uh, providing for us in, in so many different ways this wonderful church building in which we can, we can come together and, and worship you. Lord, we thank you for providing for us financially. Lord, we thank you that, um, that our church is involved in, in different ministries and supporting missions to go out to the ends of the, the world and proclaim the, the truths of the gospel. Lord, we pray that, that as we continue that, that you would continue to provide for us. Lord, we thank you for what you've done, and we know that, um, that you've been involved in, in everything that um, in the life of our church, that you've blessed it in so many ways. Lord, we pray that you would just continue to put your hand on our church. Lord, we think of Vacation Bible School. Lord, we pray that, that you would just work in tremendous ways this week, in ways that we, uh, that we can't, that we couldn't even imagine. Lord, we pray that um, when we think of the, the farmers, when we think of an agricultural community, Lord, we just uh, pray that, that you would provide for us. We thank you for the, the rain that, that you brought to us. We pray that you would just continue to, to bring uh, rain at the, at the right time, that you would bless us so that we might in turn be people who bless others. Lord, we, we pray that you would just be with what is given this morning, the offering. We pray that, that what is given this morning would be used for your honor, your glory, for the furtherance of, of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that, that you would be with those who are, who are sick, those who are ill, those who are dealing with, with hurt and pain. Lord, and we pray that you would be a source of strength and comfort for all of those. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we hear your word, as we reflect on, on the scriptures this morning. Open our eyes, help us to, to see the truth. May it be implanted deep within our, our hearts. May you send your spirit to, to guide us, to, to lead us into truth, to empower us, to, to forsake sin, to turn to you. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish through your word things that we could never have dreamed of. And we pray these things for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. There's an old proverb in Spain that says that all laws go the way that the king desires. And the story of the, the proverb is fairly interesting. It was the start of the, the 12th century, and there was a debate in Spain about whether the, the country's churches would use the, the Gothic or the Roman prayer book in their services. And the question of which prayer book they were supposed to use came to the, the king, and he was to decide. And he said, well, I'm going to leave it up to chance. And he took a, a copy of both prayer books and he threw them in the fire and he declared the one that survived the ordeal with the one that would be chosen. Well, the Gothic prayer book survived and the king threw it back into the fire and said that they would use the Roman prayer book 
and the matter was decided. All laws go the way the king desires. This is really how, many, how people really treat the will of God. They want God's will, and they say that they're going to, to leave the matter up to God, but then when God's will is, is made clear, uh, they continue to, to continue on finding God's will until it turns out to suit them. In the end, they say that they are following the will of God, but they get their own way too. The problem in this case is that they might have gotten what they wanted in the moment, but later they become confused and unhappy. I think we've all struggled with this. I've struggled with this at times in my life. How do you discern if something is God's will when you are in a position to desire it so much? When you're dating somebody and you know, you want to know if they're the, the one, you have all of this, these feelings of infatuation. Everything about the other person is, is positive in your mind. You're looking through rose-colored glasses and you're trying to discern the will of God for your life. I will say at this point, though, that those that know what the will of God is and continue to search for it until it matches up with what they desire are in a little bit different place. Those who continue that way will never know the true satisfaction in life that comes from yielding to the will of God. If you want to know the, a, a secret, not the secret, but a secret when it comes to following God's will... Here it is. The secret is being willing to do God's will even before you know what God's will is. Let me say that again a little bit differently. When it comes to God's will, we find true satisfaction in the will of God when we are willing to be obedient before we even know what it is that we are being obedient to. Just think about uh, for a moment how that mindset will change one's perspective on a lot of things. Just go back to the, the dating illustration. Most people wait until they're hopelessly infatuated with another person before even thinking about if marrying that person is God's will for their life. We wait until the relationship gets to the point where we need to make important decisions. And then we ask, is this God's will for my life? What if we walked into the relationship from the start determined to do the will of God? It might change our perspective on the whole of the relationship. It might save us from being in a situation where we are trying to get God's will to conform to our own. Which is something that most of us, if we are honest have done from time to time. I think when it comes to God's will, the, the fourth chapter of John here has some help for us. We are told here that Jesus and his disciples arrive in Samaria, and it is here that Jesus meets with this Samaritan woman by the, the well, the disciples, right? Remember, they go off into the city to buy food. Jesus waits for them by the well. He has a conversation with this woman, as she comes to get water, the conversation progresses, and Jesus leads the woman to faith. About the same time, the, the woman leaves. She leaves a water jar there, then she is going to, to go and come back. But about that time, the disciples return from the city from buying food. 
They were surprised that Jesus was talking to this woman. They were really surprised, though, that Jesus didn't want the food that they brought him. He said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. (laughs) The disciples took this literally, something that we've seen already in the book, right? Nicodemus, the woman at the well, they both do this with Jesus' statements. Jesus makes a spiritual statement and they take it very literal. And the disciples wondered if he has gotten food somewhere else. At that point, Jesus makes it clear that the food he was talking about wasn't physical food, but it was spiritual food when he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And you have to admit that that is such a great statement. There there might be questions about that statement as to what exactly Jesus means, what he's getting at there. But we still, we, we got to agree with Charles Spurgeon when he called it a golden sentence. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Why is this a golden sentence? Well, it's because these words really are what is is the the keynote of Jesus' entire life. And that is, above all, Jesus lived to do the will of God. This is the essence of Jesus' life. And the reference to food here is a reference to satisfaction. That Jesus lives to do the will of God because in that he finds perfect satisfaction. I think as we think about this idea of satisfaction that comes from desiring and doing God's will, I think we need to take a few moments here and compare the obedience of Jesus with the disobedience of Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, we're told of how Satan was thinking as he was revolting against God. Satan desired his own will above the will of God, and it resulted in the devil's dissatisfaction and ultimate judgment. Just listen to to verses 12 through 15 in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. There are a couple of interesting things here that I want you to take note of. And that is, when it comes to to Satan's thought here, the the first is that Satan's desire is to climb above the position that God had placed him in. The the place that that God had had called him to be, he wanted above that. He had been given the, the highest position of any other created being. According to Ezekiel 28, 12, he was full of wisdom and perfect beauty. He was what some might call the the king and high priest of all creation. But this was not enough. 
The, the king of creation wasn't satisfactory for him. He wanted to rise into the heavens. He wanted to, to be above the stars and sit on the mount of the assembly. He wanted to be like the Most High. To say this differently, he wanted to push God off the throne and receive all of the worship of all of the universe for himself. He wanted out of the position that God had placed him in. The second important thing about uh, Satan's thought here is that Satan strongly asserted his own will. Five times in these verses, Satan says the phrase, I will. What is tragic is that Satan's five I wills here have been multiplied into the billions over time by the, the very rebellious will of his followers and then the I wills of billions of men and women that have followed the way of the devil. I mean, when you count those who, who followed Satan, the, the, the demons, the, the fallen angels, and then the, the billions of, of men and women that have followed him in those statements, it is multiplied over time. And they have followed the way of the devil. Satan's I will was the, the origin sin of the universe and the results of sin show how tragic that consequence of trying to do things in a way other than the way God determines are. The results of Satan's rebellion that is expressed when God speaks to, to Satan after the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, 14 God said this, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I think that, that God is, is pointing at it in this curse, this idea of, of dissatisfaction. There's always going to be dissatisfaction here. God is essentially saying to the devil that his fate would be a dry, unnourishing, and tasteless existence. Just think about it this way. Certainly, Satan was involved in the death of Christ. I, I remember... Years ago, watching the, the Passion of the Christ, the, the Mel Gibson film, and when Jesus is standing before the people after his arrest, there's this dark figure. You probably remember that if you've seen the movie. This dark figure among the crowd, and it weaves in and out, and then uh, the crowd starts to yell to, to crucify Jesus. And I remember there was some question as to the, the factual, factfulness of, of that portion of, of the movie, and, and, I, and I thought to myself that, it did symbolize something that was very truthful, and that is that, that the devil, Satan, did have his hand in the death of Christ. He was involved in, in blinding the eyes of those present so they wouldn't see who Jesus really was because if they did really understand who they were going to, to crucify, they certainly would have done it. Satan got his way, of course. Christ died on the cross, and the question is, 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 did this bring Satan satisfaction? The answer is no. And the fact is, and this might be a hair controversial, but there is never, and I'm not using hyperbole, there is never a time in which Satan tries to thwart the plan of God that brings him satisfaction. Even killing Christ, Satan just ended up with a mouthful of dirt. 
But Satan is involved in many of the evils of this world. And the question is, is does this bring him satisfaction? Is he satisfied? Like a mass shooting for existence. A horrible thing. And just like the movie, you can almost imagine a dark figure around that individual that does the shooting. Horribly evil. I'm not taking away from the heinous, uh, the, the heinous nature of, of these things. I, I use this as an example because it's, it's one of the most horrible things that I can think of. The, the person has to be influenced by the, the devil. You, you would think that that would, and it does, drive people away from God. It gets them to, to question In other words, you would think that Satan would be satisfied because he had thwarted God's plan, because he had disrupted the system. But even in this, God is sovereign. And a a proper doctrine of God's sovereignty means that Satan, even Satan, cannot ultimately thwart God's plan, that God is always in control, even if we can't see it or understand it. If God was in complete control at the cross. He is in control even in the most heinous things that we can imagine that happen on earth. And even in those things, they serve the purpose of God. Again, that doesn't take away from the the evil of it, the horrible evil. But in the end of it, that thing will not bring Satan satisfaction. Even in those things, he is left with tasteless dirt in his mouth that does not satisfy. Don't miss the, the point of all of this. My point that I'm trying to illustrate is that Satan's food, Satan's food, his, his one desire in, in everything is to thwart the will of God to do his own will, to to usurp God's authority, and in that, he never gets satisfaction. Never. There is a great contrast in Scripture. We contrast the rebellion of the devil with the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the incarnation, we read this in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O God. Later, in Philippians 2, 6-10, we read, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, Satan went his own way. He desired his own will above everything, and it brought him misery and dissatisfaction, and it brings others misery. But Jesus Christ submitted himself to the will of God and found blessing for himself and others. Let me ask you this. Have you seen in your own life that the benefits of submitting to the will of God Are you willing to go or do whatever he wants you to do? Not asking you to do it. At this point, it's just are you willing? Do you desire, do you will to do the will of the Father? 
The fact is, we naturally desire our own will over God's will. Even though we know in our hearts His will is best. Let me make one more distinction here. Notice that Jesus doesn't just say, my food is to do the will. No, wait. Think about it. This is what Jesus does not say. My food is to will the will of Him who sent me. He didn't say that. That's important. We've pointed that out. I mean, we need to want that. But He said that His food was to do the will of Him who sent me. This is important. Because we can have good intentions. We can even get the, the, that secret right. We can determine to do the will of God before we even know what it is. But then when the rubber meets the road and we figure out what God wants of us, we fail to do his will. Just desiring or determining the, the will of God, to do the will of God, doesn't mean that in the end we will do it. Jesus told a story about a a father with two sons. The father owned a vineyard, and he asked his, his first son to go and work in the vineyard, and the son refused. He said, no, I will not do it. But then he, he repented, and he, and he went. And then the, 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 the second son said, well, I'll go work in the vineyard, but in the end, he didn't go. And Jesus asked those listening, who did the will of the father? And the people said that the, the first son did. And Jesus said that this was a, a contrast between the religious leaders of the day that were constantly saying, yes, yes, I will obey God. But in the end, they, they didn't. And it was a contrast between them and the, the sinners who started off in, in disobedience, but then later repented and did the will of God and longed to be obedient. But the contrast is valid today. Are we these people that say, yes, 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 I will, I will obey God's desires. I will do His will. I will do what He wants me to do. We have good intentions, but when it comes right down to it, we know what is right, but we do not do it. You see, it's one thing to know what is right. It's another thing to do it. I think we are people that are pretty good at, at talking about God's will. Let me just clarify something. <clears throat> you might ask at this point in the message, well, what is God's will for my life? Is the pastor going to tell me that? Well, when it comes to finding the will of God for your life and being obedient to that, we always start with the will of God that has already been revealed. Far too many people worry about God's will for their life. They struggle with it and, and fail to recognize that if they just concern themselves with the will of God that has been clearly revealed in Scripture and they gave themselves over to that, that these other things would just fall into place. Let, let me see if I can illustrate some of these things. For instance, when one reads the Bible, they should be very impressed with the number of things that we ought to do. The Bible tells you to do a lot of things. It has a lot of commands. You know what commands are? God's will for your life. <laughs> for instance, if you're not a Christian, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are told to enter through the narrow gate. That the gate is, is wide and broad, 
that leads to destruction. That's the road that everybody is on. The narrow gate is, is Jesus, and the will of God for your life is to get off the wide road, enter through the, the narrow gate, Jesus Christ, that leads to life. To believe on Him, to trust in Him as your Lord and your Savior, and submit to Him. That's God's will for your life if you're not a believer. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, the first thing is believe in Him, trust in Him. That's God's will for your life. It's already been revealed. God already told us that. If you are a believer, the Sermon on your mouth, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your God in heaven. We are told to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In 1 Peter 3, we're told, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks about the reason for the hope that you have and do this with all gentleness and all respect. In 1 Peter 5, we're told to be humble, self-controlled, and alert in all things. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I mean, of course, there's a, the list of verses here is, is almost endless. But here's the point so far. Jesus didn't just say that we are to desire to do the will of the Lord. We do that. But we are to do the will of the Lord. But Jesus' words continue. If you notice, verse 34, John chapter 4. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. I just gave you a, a few of the verses that tell us what we ought to do. The, the will of God for your life. In, in other words, it's just a small sampling of what God's will is for you. The Bible is full of God's will for you. Now, many Christians, many of us begin the work of doing God's will, but fail to finish it. Notice the contrast here between Jesus and you and I. In Psalm chapter 40, we mentioned this earlier, before the incarnation, Jesus said through David, Here I am, I have come, it is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O God, your law is within my heart. In the New Testament, we see how this is accomplished. Jesus uh, takes on our humanity. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in a, a not-so-great place called Nazareth. He was uh, he was raised in a carpenter shop, and when it came time for him to begin his teaching ministry, he went to all the towns and villages in Israel. And in the midst of all of this, he looked toward the cross. The cross always loomed over him in an increasing way. And just before Jesus was crucified, in John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus prays this to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And then not long later, his last words from the cross is, it is finished. 
There is no question that Jesus completed the work that God gave him to do. This was his food, to do the will of the Father and to complete it. At the cross, it was done. Now, this is where we can draw a line between uh, what we can call true Christianity on one side and what some have called uh, Christian moralism on the other. Moralism says that the Bible says, do these things. You must do them and you must accomplish them. It puts the burden all on you. The Bible says in the Sermon on the Mount that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A a radical example, I think, but it makes the point. Moralism says you must strive for that. You must do that. The burden of that, being perfect, is on you. The command is there, so therefore it is there for you to obey. It's there for you to work hard and strive for. Here's an example that might not be quite so radical. Galatians chapter 5 verse 14 says that all of the law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's obviously the will of God to love your neighbor as yourself. It's good to be obedient. It's good to do the will of God. After all, that's the point that we've tried to to make, right? Doing the will of God brings satisfaction. But at the same time, one can get so caught up in the, the doing part of loving your neighbors that they can look at this command and the only word they see is do. You need to do more. And the more you do will never be enough. You can always do more. Does that sound like satisfaction to you? The fact is, you can always love your neighbors more than you are. And my question for you is, how are you supposed to finish this? How can you accomplish this? That's moralism. Moralism puts the burden on you. It keeps piling it on you. Because whatever law there is, you can always do more. And you're never going to be good enough. Just think about Peter's command that we mentioned earlier to always have an answer ready. That's true. We should always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask about the hope that we have to do that with gentleness and respect. But can you be prepared for every question? Can you finish that? Can you be prepared for every question that one might ask? What if a Mormon asks you, a Hindu, a Muslim, are we supposed to be well-versed in every religion in order to more effectively point one to Christ? You see how the command, the the emphasis could be on the the do part. And the do part, there's always more to do. My point is that yes, we are to be obedient. But we also must realize that we cannot finish the work. Jesus did that. We cannot, we are unable, and therefore we must trust in the one who did that on our behalf. The law always points back to Christ. It doesn't point to itself. The the difference between a Christian and a Christian moralist is that true Christians recognize that all of the do's in Scripture, that, that all of the revealed will of God in the Scripture was perfectly fulfilled by Christ and applied to them through faith. And this is where there is a great freedom. Loving your neighbor then doesn't become about do. 
It becomes about freedom. It becomes about desire to, to want to obey God or being ready with an answer or whatever the case might be. It's not about to do anymore. The burden is gone because Christ bore it for you. It doesn't become about trying to fill a certain obligation to be good enough to check a command off a list. But because it is God's will, we long to be obedient because there's great satisfaction in that. Now let me clarify something. <clears throat> I've used words interchangeably here. I realize that when I speak of law, I'm thinking about things in Scripture that we are supposed to do. So the, 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 the will of, of God, the, things that, the revealed will of God, the things that we are supposed to, to do is law. When the Bible says, do this, that's, that's law. That's God's will for you. And being obedient to the law is good. We're supposed to. But at the same time, we don't earn God's favor by being obedient to the law. That is what Christ did on our behalf. Our favor is found in Christ alone who fulfilled every detail of the law on our behalf. That is gospel. The law is not gospel. The law is law and points to gospel. Jesus accomplished that work. He finished this. And we trust in his finished work. Let me ask you this, Christian, when it comes to the, the revealed will of God. First, is it your desire to want, to long to be obedient? And why? Do you long to, to be obedient? Are you doing these things? Are you putting into practice what you read in the Scriptures? Are you trusting that the one, are you trusting in the, in the one that, that perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father on your account? The law, this always points back to Christ Jesus. It always leads us to the gospel. In other words, doing the will of God, being obedient to the law, shouldn't be a burden. It should bring satisfaction. It, it isn't like putting a, a big heavy backpack on every day trying to go out to be obedient. It isn't a burden. Do you recognize that you are completely righteous, completely good with God because of His perfect obedience? In my mind, those things should spur us. It should push us. We should desire to be obedient. Not to check off a box, but because we, we love the one who did this for us so much. So we're so grateful for what he has done for us. That he dealt with these things in a way that we could not have done. And the more we, we trust in him and the more we, we read in the scripture, this is what you're supposed to do. And the more we long to be obedient, the more we keep coming back to the gospel and keep coming back to the fact that, that Jesus Christ did this perfectly for me. This is God's standard. This is God's will for my life. That I do this, but I, I can't finish this. Only he did it. He finished it for me. And in that recognition, there is such great satisfaction in doing the will of God. And I pray that you experience that.
I pray that the will of God isn't a burden for you, but it brings great satisfaction. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.